0: Walks like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal. Come hear the animal, talking animal, talking animal. Walks like an animal, talks like.
1: Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Ingrid Newkirk, co founder and president of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, PETA. To mark fetus. 40th anniversary, New Korea has just published a new book, co written by author Gene Stone, called Animal Kind Remarkable Discoveries About Animals and Revolutionary New Ways to Show Them Compassion. Animal Kind is presented in two distinct sections and arguably ends up delivering multiple books, given all the topics and information they cover. In the initial portion, the authors examine findings, both new and historic about animals, while the second portion presents an array of highly current information about how folks who truly care about animal welfare and animals can take action to prevent using or abusing them. We'll hear much more about the book, take a look at where PETA is in the midst of its 40th anniversary, note that Newkirk will give a talk in Tampa on February 9th, and more when I speak with Anger Newkirk in a phone moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in the program, I'll speak with Carol Baskin, founder of Big Cat Rescue, the Tampa Sanctuary, housing more than 100 big cats, about the sentence handed down last week to her longtime rival after he was convicted of arranging for Baskin's murder. Lastly, I'm practically constitutionally obligated to mention that we are a week. Just less than a week now From WNS Winter Fund Drive Which gets underway next Tuesday I've been assigned another towering fundraising goal So I will really need early pledges To have a chance of reaching that goal And as always we'll have an array of thank you gifts For pledges at all levels Including a pair of fantastic tickets To see the last Tampa show of Elton John's Farewell Tour A pair of amazing tickets To see Mark Marin doing stand-up Marin himself arranged these tickets So they'll be like what a family member Or friend would get a signed copy of Cattail, the new Craig Pittman book all about the Florida Panther, and more. Visit TalkingAnimals.net for more info and fast, easy ways to pledge, or you can just donate by hitting the Talking Animals tip jar. Right now, though, let's get to my conversation with Ingrid, with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813 813- Four three three zero eight eight seven. This is Ingrid Newkirk on Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, Ingrid. Good morning, Duncan. How are
2: you?
1: Good. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. And I should note you're not only calling in from San Francisco in the airport, but uh, given all the the talks and interviews you've been doing, it sounds like you've got a little bit of a uh, scratchy, tough throw here. But uh, we'll—I'll try to do some of the talking. But more so, we want to hear, of course, you do the talking. So, uh, congratulations, first of all, on the book and and on Peter's fortieth anniversary. And, of course, those two things are connected. So I'm guessing that when the 40th anniversary was on the horizon, you determined that one way to mark the anniversary was writing, or in this case, co-writing a new book. Tell me how you decided on the format of Animal Kind.
2: Well, the format of Animal Kind is pretty much how Peter has been organized from the beginning. And forgive me if I sound like Ernest Borgnine, but you're right, I do have a bad throat. Um, I'm dying to get to Tampa, where it's warmer than the places I've been. Sure. Um, Our whole um, modus operandi is to take people behind the scenes, show them what animals go through, but then talk to people about how incredibly intelligent, how smart, how communicative animals are, and how they're pretty much given short shrift. And so I wanted to collect as many interesting, jaw-dropping facts as I could about animals. And even though I collect them all the time, I learned a lot writing this book, and then the second part, as you mentioned, is to say, "Well, now you know how animals love, how they're full of emotion, and all the things that they do. Here are some easy ways that you can let those that new understanding perhaps inform your." daily habits and make a real difference. And I think society is ready for that now. You see that all around us.
1: Well, I want to develop those two elements a little bit more in a sec, but I'm curious how much consideration was given to, since this book does coincide, of course, with the 40th anniversary, how much thought was given to presenting either a history of PETA or an account of the organization's uh, key accomplishments over those decades as opposed to what you ended up deciding on?
2: Well, actually, it doesn't have much of that. It's really not for people who are curious about Peter. Yeah. It's for people who are curious about animals. Right. I thought it was a great time to actually, because, I mean, nowadays, you can't go out of the door without falling over a sign that says vegan this or vegan that. And the big circus, you know, Ringling Brothers' biggest circus in the world, kids used to run out on the, to the street to see it. Nobody wants it anymore. It's gone. Yeah. And so you've got clothing that comes in all sorts of types without taking it from animals back. So I thought. This is the time to just really say what Peter is about is showing us that humans aren't that special. I mean, we are in some ways, but we also are not special in the way we love and grieve and feel joy and desire freedom, don't want to die needlessly. And if you look at the complex ways in which animals communicate with each other, things that we're just in the last decade beginning to understand. In fact, new ways almost every week we learn. Um, and you see how they do bond with each other and they look out for their, their themselves and us and how they have to really struggle in a human-dominated world to figure out what we're saying, what we're doing. Even the dogs in our home have to figure out how they can get our attention because they need to relieve themselves or they want a glass of, or, you know, drink of water. So I thought, let me collect things that are kind of amazing to people, facts about animals, about how chimpanzees like slapstick humor about how rhinos have now been discovered to have a breath language, all those kinds of things. It's for people, the book is for people who are interested in animals or curious about animals. It's not a, really about Peter. although in the book, you're right, I do mention things that we have accomplished at Peter, like stopping the use of animals in car crash tests, because now we have um, mannequins, we have car crash dummies.
1: Well, that's the thing, I mean, I think some folks, hearing that you have new book out, notwithstanding the title, might have expected sort of more of a polemic, but it really is this kind of array of information. And you said uh, earlier in in our conversation that in the course of working on the book that you learned a number of things. What were some of the things that you learned uh, going into something, having been involved with animals for decades now that really did kind of surprise you along the way?
2: There was quite a lot. I mean, I knew that chimpanzees, for example, can outsmart college students when... It comes to memory. You know, there are tests devised where you can put up symbols and numbers on a board and then make them disappear. And a college student and a chimpanzee have to figure out where to place those things back on the board. And chimpanzees beat college students every time. That I knew. But what I didn't know is that chimpanzees kiss February the 14th is coming up. Worth remembering how many animals kiss, flirt, elephants entwine their trunks around each other, put their trunks in each other's mouths to kiss, and that if they, many of them, like a dolphin, a dolphin has an individual, unique whistle name, and every other dolphin knows that name if they're in the same pod or a related pod, and if they haven't seen a dolphin for 20 years or heard that whistle for 20 years, they still remember it. So it was just one thing after another. I thought, gosh, I didn't know that. And Mm -hmm. I didn't know
1: that. Yeah. Well, also, too, there's a whole uh, part of that first section of the book. There's a a chapter devoted to navigation, which in itself I think is fascinating. And Sometimes it's easy to take things for granted. Uh, When I was driving over here this morning, I was thinking, I grew up in Southern California, sort of between uh, L.A. and San Diego, so not far from where the Swallows uh, famously come back to San Juan Capistrano each year. And you don't, people would talk about that. It would be the inevitable newspaper article each year. But you don't really think think about how remarkable that is until you get some distance and then you start thinking about whales and their migrations or the great migration in in Africa and you just think that is. uh, the more I think about this this is absolutely remarkable that they do this, they know exactly where to go when to go, have little or no snags along the way and it's it's, it's, it's its own phenomenon, but again, easy to overlook if you're not really focused.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, we don't think about it, or we take it for granted. But if you look carefully, I mean, so many animals, from turtles to various birds, navigate by low-frequency radio waves, or the night sky, or the Earth's magnetic field. We have GPS, we have satellites, we can ask people directions. We don't use any of those things. We're hopelessly lost if we, if we lose those Those uh, are crutches, really. Yeah. But these animals know when to go. I have Duncan. There's a crow who has one foot. She has two legs, but she has one foot. I don't know how she lost it, but she comes by my office window in Washington all the time, and I feed her. She hates falafels, She spat it out on somebody walking beneath the window, (laughs) but she loves berries and other things. Once a year, there comes a time when all these other crows gather, it's as if she, and she probably has, told them, here's where you stock up for your migration. And I can get 50 or more crows arrive, I feed them, and off they go. And they migrate together as one group, even though they've been foraging separately or in small families for the rest of the year. It's phenomenal how they know this is the moment. They read the wind currents. They read the weather. They know that this is the time.
1: And also, it sounds like it might overlap another chapter in the first section of the book because there's been obviously some communication that, hey, if you head over to uh, Ingrid's window, you can get uh, some berries or a nice uh, meal before you head off on your migration.
2: Yes, humans or birds, you're all welcome. Yeah. will feed all comers.
1: That's right. But, no,
2: it's true. I mean, we really don't look that carefully at animals, and we should. If you go to the Internet, you know, many people have dogs at home and adore them. But dogs have to figure out, and most dogs, they say, know 300 human words without being taught what if they live in a home because they pay attention in this, in this world. They have to. And you see on the Internet, they'll bring you the dog bowl. They'll bring you the leash. They're trying to communicate with you, look, I can't speak your language, you can't speak mine, but this is what I need or want right now. And horses, actually in Finland, I love this. It's so cold. And they have been taught to tap a symbol that's on a fence to say, I'm cold, I'd like a blanket on. And people put a blanket on, and then if they're too warm, which I don't even understand how that's possible in Finland, they tap another symbol to have the blanket taken off. So they figure things out. You
1: know? Yeah. No, it's, uh, they're smart and especially back to the dogs in our house, they, they do whatever they need to do to say, hey, dummy, I, I'm hungry. I need to go out. I need some water. Step, step up here. Get with it. So, uh, yeah, sometimes they have to be very, uh, very clear in their own messaging, but, uh, and Duncan,
2: their noses are so incredibly keen scented I mean they make ours look as if they don't exist and so I say to people you know you love your dog don't resent the morning walk or the evening walk or whatever it is it's their walk let them have the time it's not just to do their business it's an excursion for that they don't get to go out when they want to so take the time chuck the phone aside and just wait and let them smell whatever they want to smell because that means a lot to them It's like us getting on the Internet to read the news or listening to the radio to get the news. That there, new, smelling the bushes, seeing which other animals have come that way. We're incapable. We have no idea who walked that way. They know every single person and what kind of health they were in, how long ago it was. Just let them enjoy their walk. Never pull them along.
1: Yeah, no, it's a, a true bonanza for them and they should really be able to uh, to savor it. This is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just joined us, my guest is Inger Newker, co- the co-founder and president of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, PETA. She's just published a new book, co-written with Jean Stone, called Animal Kind: Remarkable Discoveries About Animals and Revolutionary New Ways to Show Them Compassion. She'll be giving a talk at the Vault in Tampa on February 9th. Meanwhile, if you'd like to ask her a question or offer a comment, please call 813 239 nine six six three email dj at WMF.org or text eight one three four three three zero eight eight five so anniversaries uh, Ingrid are often a time for reflection if required to limit it to three and and you are indeed limited to three what would you point to as peter's accomplishments that of which you're most proud you mentioned one or two already but if you had to really uh reduce it down to the top three what would those be
2: it's tough and on our website i must say if i can plug this there is an enormous list of victories. We mentioned stopping all car crash tests worldwide on animals yeah. and substituting dummies. I think that is a major accomplishment because so many animals, we just slammed into a wall to see if the steering wheel held up. I mean, it didn't have to be done. Um, I do believe we also mentioned wriggling being closed down. Nowadays, we are managing to get um, laws passed to ban the bull hook, to ban wild animals used in circuses. They don't want to stand on their heads and wear stupid headdresses. They belong in the wild. Nowadays, people appreciate that. I do think that working with the Environmental Protection Agency recently to get them finally to think, yes, your scientists are right. We have 19 scientists on staff just in toxicology. It isn't right to continue in this day and age. 2020, we're still poisoning mice and monkeys and dogs just to test chemicals. We now have high-speed computers, so we have managed to get the EPA to work with us, and they are stepping away. They have a game plan to end the use of animals in poisoning toxicity tests. That is fantastic. But if I could point to one, I think pushing the envelope, especially in the courts, um, we brought a lawsuit challenging the uh, confinement of orcas, way they're kept at SeaWorld in those cement tanks, deprived of being out in the ocean, deprived of being with their pods, wearing their teeth down to the nubs by chewing on the metal gratings that are under the water. And we said the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution prohibits the institution of slavery. And it doesn't say coup, it just says the institution of slavery And if you define slavery, I mean, what is more clear than these immense, intelligent, ocean-going mammals taken out of the sea and bunged into that cement cell and forced to perform for a dead fish so that someone can make money? That's slavery. So we lost the case. We didn't expect to win it. But as anybody in social causes knows, you, you lose, you lose, you lose, and one day you win.
1: Right. Sometimes the the tiny uh, path towards victory are in those initial uh, losses, especially when it comes to uh, uh, suing or, or litigation of that kind. Continuing kind of the theme of just reflecting in the course of an anniversary, looking across that vast 40-year timeline, what are some things you see that you might wish you or PETA had done differently, whether it's campaigns, policy positions, media statements, or anything else?
2: Well, Duncan, we have stayed absolutely true to our founding purpose, which is the belief, which back then was really um, laughed at, that animals are not ours. They're not things. They're not living burglar alarms or cheap tools for research. They're not ours to use and abuse. They're like other nations. There are other kinds of living beings like us. They're one animal among many. And if we took biology 101, We know that we are an animal too. They have talents, we have talents, but we all have love and emotions and interests and so on. And we share a lot of those. So people would just say, oh, just that's rubbish. Today, especially among young people, there is an understanding of that. And we have soldiered on with that idea that whenever you're doing something that even is unwittingly cruel, and people never knew back when we started that cosmetics were tested in rabbits' eyes. They never knew about factory farms. They didn't know about fur, where it comes from, the horror of that. But now they do, and we're still seeing the same thing, which is, if you know that something is cruel, if your eyes are opened to it, let us help you. Let us point out, and I do this in Animal Kind, let us point out all the wonderful things compassionate options that are available to you. So I think I've pretty much stayed on focus that time, even when we've had to be very gimmicky to get in the news, even when we've had to, you know, make pretty much fools of ourselves uh, to make a point. We have managed to keep going in that way.
1: Well I'd like to follow up on that then because yeah, as you say on the one you stayed true. But especially over forty years, any kind of organization or person changes, evolves and Earlier on, maybe they do things or take positions that in a later period they simply wouldn't. Uh, For instance, I have a 16-year-old son, and one of the duties of a teenage boy, apparently, is to sometimes say provocative things, maybe even inflammatory things, partly because he's a fledging and partly to test boundaries. So I was thinking about this and preparing to speak with you. I'm not merely likening PETA to a surly uh, 16-year-old boy. But (laughs) as you take stock of the organization's history, I have to believe, and you kind of alluded to it a little bit a moment ago, that there have been more than a few instances where PETA's position or campaign was deliberately provocative just to generate media attention, if nothing else, or, or, or for some other uh, objective.
2: Well, yes, it's definitely to generate media attention. You're absolutely right. And sometimes, especially given how the media has changed, as you know, over the years, we've had to be fairly provocative. One thing that people will say, oh, PETA is so extreme, and you think, hang on a minute, taking... An animal who's minding their own business and deciding to string them up by a leg and cut their throat because you want a sandwich out of their flesh, that to me is pretty extreme. So if we have to do, you know, I'd I'd rather go naked than wear fur or we have it's to make sure that someone pays attention. And it's not just for doing its sake, it's always to spark conversation. And it does. Even if people say oh, those Peter people, did you see what they did today? And then they talk about it. And someone will say, well, actually, you know, they have a point because I saw, and the conversation goes from there. I don't think we have to do some of the things we used to have to do because society has moved on, but we have had to be. I mean, we've crawled along the pavement covered in fake blood outside fur stores, we don't have to do that anymore because Galliano, Gucci, Donna, Karen, Versace, nobody, nobody designs fur anymore, but it took to get us to the point where enough people had seen the undercover footage that we've shot and have heard what was happening to the animals that they said, I don't want it anymore.
1: So it does sound like there's the sense of being a provocateur collectively for a number of years, maybe the focus of what those provocative campaigns or statements has, has changed. But sometimes, again, back to your um, earlier answer of, of staying true, I mean, the thing you mentioned is, I guess, a good example. I'd rather go naked than wear fur. I mean, it does seem like in 2020, just barely 2020, but still, even just in 2019, that using naked women in a campaign just feels like, well, among its problems is it's antiquated, but there's deeper problems than that that I'm sure you've heard and read about and I guess don't accept.
2: Well, no, actually, I do accept because I've been a feminist since the beginning, when I was 18, 17 for women's rights, for equal pay, and not to be the person in the office that Every man thought they could ask to bring them coffee. Uh (laughs) I do understand it, and I'm delighted with Me Too. I mean, it's ripped the lid off things, and so we've had to rethink. You're absolutely right. We've had to reevaluate, and that's been modifying as time goes on. I mean, we used to have the lettuce ladies. We still have the lettuce ladies, but the lettuce ladies used to wear skimpy lettuce bikinis. That time has long passed. Nobody thought any of it, anything of it at the time except... It was fun, and we had, you know, guys do it, but nobody paid any attention to them when they were wearing skimpy things. Um, but no, we modified it so they were wearing lettuce dresses and so on. And now I don't think we need anything like that because, again, you know, people are clued in; they've seen enough. And the moment has passed. They do to do that with uh, women. But let me just say this: no woman was ever exploited because everybody was a volunteer, and this may not bear much thinking about, but I've been naked even 10 years ago, and I'm now 70, so it wasn't a sexist thing. It was just like Lady Godiva, is I'm protesting here, and in many cases, it was just like, I am reduced to doing this because you're not paying
1: attention. Yeah, well, I think the intended messaging in some cases and the messaging that was received because of feminism and other sort of obstacles uh, for that message to come through, I guess, the way you and others repeated intended, that's maybe where things went awry with some of those campaigns.
2: You're right. I mean, people, we got a lot of criticism. I guess it was third wave or whatever wave feminists who, unlike earlier feminists who believed, don't tell me that I should cover up. If I want to take my clothes off, this is Afghanistan, I can. You know, it used to be brothers and husbands and fathers told women, you dress respect uh, respectably, you wear things below your knee, you cover your shoulders, you don't show your breasts. You do. And waves of feminism after that. The feminist said, "Don't tell me. I, if I want to take all my clothes off, I can. I'm not. You know, it's not up to you to decide. It's up to me." And so that was the sort of Lady Godiva-ish stage. Then it's moved on, and now we have Me Too, which I mean makes it absolutely anathema. I'm so glad to have to do anything like that to get attention. But in its time, everybody had to have a look. Kim Basinger, "I'd rather go naked." Ava Mandez "I'd rather go naked." You know, all these wonderful stars said, Yeah, I believe in this cause enough that I'd rather go naked than wear fur. And it was a joke because obviously nobody goes naked if they don't wear fur, they wear something else.
1: Yeah. Again this is Talking Animals on WMNF I'm Duncan Strauss I'm speaking with uh, Ingrid Newkirk, Co-founder and president of PETA She's co-written with Gene Stone The new book Animal Kind Remarkable Discoveries About Animals and Revolutionary New Ways to Show Them Compassion We invite you to join the conversation By calling 813-239-9663 emailing dj at wmnf.org Or texting 813-433-0885 So along those lines of things shifting And setting aside certain campaigns In recent days uh, I guess in mentioning or promoting or just thinking about this uh, this conversation. I've seen comments suggesting that the book and the speaking tour that sort of go with it are a bid to kind of resurrect and or polish PETA's uh, damaged uh, image. What would be your thoughts on that?
2: <laughs> well, I find that a damaged image. We have 6.5 million supporters. We have the biggest youth movement in the country for uh, kids, care about animals, and I mean, people throw stones. I have trolls. If we post something that's really about kindness and being understanding of animals, being respectful, somebody will post, you know, sizzling bacon. I mean, that's what we're reduced to these days. So I don't take that seriously at all because I read the mail and everyone is saying, thank you, thank you. I'm so glad you have mentors to help me make these transitions. I'm so glad you have materials. I can find any resource I want from dissection to clothing on your website. Um, We have wonderful videos people are using in their social platforms. So there are always haters. And I think you can trace a lot of them back to the meat industry, the circus industry, the fur industry. Some of these people who have been using animals in experiments for years, like in the forced swim test, which we just stopped. Our victories speak for themselves, our numbers speak for themselves, and I don't buy that for
1: a second okay and how is there any way to, to when you say about the 6 plus million uh, members is there any way to track or quantify what kind of churn there might have been like I, I get the sense and again I've heard from all kinds of people just in recent days only anecdotally obviously in this case but that people who have been PETA members and uh, supporters uh, who are not now so I make, make I can't help but wonder about that 6 plus a million number if people have come and gone and, and especially some of large number have gone over the years, even if the numbers are are sizable at the moment.
2: I really don't know who you're hearing from, but I think that somebody has cleared you into some sort of nasty line because, yes, it's all very trackable, and you can see our numbers on Twitter, on Facebook, all those things are right there for the uh, looking, Um, and I mean, we know how much mail we send out, how many uh, vegan starter kits are downloaded, that the sin frog, which we just spent $150,000 to develop, the synthetic frog that's going into schools is getting great press. It's everywhere. Teachers are excited. Students are excited. We see all these things happening every day. Just look at the victories and you will be, I guarantee, impressed. So there may be some Knocking people out there. I've read some things where people say I work to Peter and all this sort is animals And I think right. That's why we have we give people a week off at Christmas. And they can take off if their animals are sick. It's considered normal sick leave time. We have a lunch program. Yeah, oh, so many things. So I think yes. If someone's fired, they're going to be disgruntled. And I think anybody who runs an organization knows that. But, in Animal Kind, which is not about Peter, it's about what you can do and how much your power of the class makes a difference. Um, it's all positive. It's all exciting. And Peter is all about positivity.
1: Okay, well, let's get some callers involved, and then we'll come back to a few more of my own questions. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Ingrid Newkirk.
0: Why, why they believe in putting down pit puppies and adult
1: Pit. Sorry, I think we missed the very first part of your thing. I, I don't think we had your call engaged at the, at the very beginning. Can you just repeat the very beginning of what you said? I'm sorry. Sure. Um, could you have the
0: guest explain why Peter believes in putting down pit bulls um, upon entrance to the shelter even well-behaved pit bulls?
2: Well, this is one of those things. Um, thank you for being concerned. Pit bulls are absolutely the most abused animals there are. You know, they're used by pimps and dogfighters and everybody else. We run one shelter, just one. It's in a low-income area at the North Carolina-Virginia border. And if you go online to peter.org, you will see all the pit bulls we help and all the pit bulls, the disgusting living conditions out there on a chain 24-7 in the heart of winter, in the blazing heat of summer, on what we do for them. One of the things we do, we don't believe in just, you know, wantonly going around and um, euthanizing pit bulls. What we do is recognize that um, pit bulls need everything that they can get. We we don't advocate for people to breed pit bulls. We don't advocate for people to have pit bulls, although the shelters are full of them, if there is another option, because there are problems with many pit bulls because of the way they've been brought up and because how they were bred. But let me just say this. This one video called A hundred Pitbulls in a hundred seconds. And you can see hundred pit bulls in abominable living conditions that we find in our neighborhood. We provide free dog houses, free straw during the winter, a lightweight tie out for them instead of a heavy chain. And sometimes those chains weigh more than the dogs themselves. And we stay on muter. Any pit bull free of charge because an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. But yes, if there's an aggressive pit bull, if there is a pit bull with nowhere to go, then we will advocate euthanasia, no question.
1: All right, caller, thank you. You brought up PETA's shelter, which some people may not even be aware of. Now, is there a a procedure there for determining whether an animal will be put up for adoption or be euthanized?
2: Of course. I mean,
1: how could you run a shelter with without it? Well, that, yeah, I just—I've never seen anything stated, and and uh, yeah. I haven't seen the the new the 2019 statistics for the shelter. But I just like to run down the 2018 numbers for a second, see if they sound right to you. So, I, I what I found is that 2,512—I guess a little over 2,500 animals came into the shelter in 2018, and 17 almost 1,800, 1,798 apparently of those were killed,
2: euthanized, and let me tell you why. Mm -hmm. because this is another of those things where people set out to fight up. We are surrounded by what is called no-kill shelters. No-kill shelters only take in adoptable animals. They don't take in the broken, the diseased, the aggressive. So we didn't want to have a shelter, but when we moved to this low-income poverty pocket, we saw that people have nowhere to go. If they have an aged animal, even when they love, and many of them don't, they've just got some aged animal on a chain somewhere, maybe dying of hot disease. This heartworm is endemic in that area. And they can't get that animal into a no-kill shelter. No-kill shelters are full immediately because there's so many animals who are in trouble and they limit their intake hours. They limit their um, ability to take animals in. They charge to take animals in. We're dealing with people who don't have a job, don't have income, elderly people, and we say we are open twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, including Christmas Day. And if your dog has a is wrecked with cancer, you can't afford going to the vet, you can come to us. So let we take them in and the people are with them and hold them while they are relieved of that suffering. We're the only shelter that does that. That's why those statistics are high and let nobody throw a stone at us because the door is slammed in the face of those animals in the close need. But let me add one thing those statistics do not include the adoptable animals. We do adopt some animals we take in because we're open at two o'clock in the morning. Someone will bring us an adoptable animal. Most animals are not even listed on that statistic because we refer them to an open admission adoption facility and never take them in because we are not trying to do that. We are trying to provide end of life emergency care. You know?
1: Oh yeah. Well no I, I in fact I was gonna say that that of those numbers that I cited there was nine hundred twelve dogs apparently that entered the shelter 18 of those were adopted, and I guess 281 is probably what you're referring to now, were transferred to... Uh, no,
2: no, no, that, that's in addition. That's in addition, the 200 and whatever it was, that's okay. in addition, because they actually came in. Most of them never come in. We do two things. We say, don't bring them to us that sounds like a highly placeable, cute, fluffy, horse-broken, whatever animal. Take those to somewhere like the Virginia Beach SPCA or the Norfolk SPCA, because they're huge facilities families go through. That's great. We also advise people who are about to give up their animal and stop it by giving them um, information on limited, uh, on how they can house train, on how they can deal with aggression, on where they can find subsidized veterinary care if possible, those kinds of things. But we do something that I wish somebody would pay attention to. We save more animals including pit bulls, than any of them. Because we operate four mobile spay and user clinics and an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, we have sterilized over 150,000 animals who are not contributing to the unwanted animal crisis.
1: Okay, so um, let's see if we can get... We're starting to run out of time here, but let's see if we can get another caller involved. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Ingrid Newkirk.
3: Yes, hello. Hello. Um, I have a complaint about animal services uh, i live in riverview and it's kind of a low-income area <laughs> on a dead-end street and on each side of me is two cases of animal abuse and cruelty and i've been trying one case uh, <clears throat> next to me oh she has seven dogs in 10 years She's kicks in the back of a yard is full of junk and debris and oh the dogs are suffering and i i have oh, animal services that Oh, they just ignored me, and I finally, finally got Corporal Butler to come out. He was supposed to be an investigator, and I took him to the back of my yard, and you could see through the fence, and I showed him the two dogs. One was a German Shepherd mix, and one was a pit bull mix, and they were starved and sitting in a junk pile, and all he said to me was, I can't go over there and do anything about it. It's an invasion of their privacy, the woman's privacy, and I could lose my job. And he walked away and left, and those two dogs finally died of starvation and thirst. <laughs> and then I have another case now, recently on the other side. Of okay, the-
1: I'm so sorry to interrupt, yeah. but do you have a, a question or a comment yeah, for Angry Newkirk? Yeah, because we're running out of time. I'm so sorry to interrupt.
2: Yeah, well, Duncan, it- let let me answer this because yeah. I'm so glad you called. Yeah, yeah please do. Uh, yeah, they- I, so happy I get ignored. That you care. Hang on a minute. Uh, I'm so happy that you care. Don't Yes, I off. do. Listen, listen, please. We have. a around-the-clock cruelty investigation unit all over the country, all over the world. You give us the best photographs, the best detailed descriptions, the exact address, tell us what you've done, and send it in to PETA.org and ask for the cruelty investigations division, and we will look into it, we will talk to animal control, we will see what we can do, and I guarantee us. Everything you're saying is right. We will get something done. We can't bring back the dead dogs, but we can do something now.
1: All right. Thank it's you very dot much.
2: Theater.org. PETA. Yes, Peta.org.
3: Yeah, you. you'll you'll yes.
1: find yes. It where to submit it on the website. Thank you so much for a call, and I hope you get uh, satisfaction this way. And thank you for your concern. <laughs> bye bye. So, Ingrid, we're just in the last moment or two, but this, uh, in some ways, the caller question they raised may overlap uh, one of our emailer questions, but says, "Of course, I'm a big supporter of PETA and have been for 30 years. However, I believe TNVR is a way to save lives and bring down the overpopulation of cats. Why is PETA against TNVR and euthanizes cats?" Instead, thanks.
2: Oh, well, what we've got is rules and regulations for TNR, which is trap, muter, release, which sometimes, hate to say it, is trap, neuter, and abandoned. Makes the people feel better about what they have done. They haven't taken a life. But uh, if you go to our website, you will see a lot about the animals that we are called out to come and help who have been trapped, muted, and abandoned. There are some very good caretakers, and if they live by the rule, and they know how to re-trap an animal who is hurt, who is injured, who is sick, who is aged and cannot exist out there happily or comfortably, then that's great. Oh, my t- I take my hat off to them. But just spaying and neutering, which of course is better than nothing, and dumping them out somewhere where often they're unwanted or they're in danger or they don't do well and they die badly is not a public service. So please look at the photographs, the videos. And our position online, and if you're part of trap, neuter, and release, please make sure you live by the rules so the cats are looked after, not trapped, neutered, and abandoned.
1: So, just to clarify, you're not against the idea of trap, neuter, and release, or or TNVR in this case, as the emailer said, and... And how that uh, works with the community cat colonies? You're saying just be careful and take it case by case, depending on what that cat might, where that cat might be returned to, and what their circumstance would be. Do I yeah. do I have that right? We
2: have Duncan in Washington D.C. There are 340 what they call cat feeding stations. Cats need more than feed. I mean, would you take your cat and bung them outside? in all weather, in the ice and the snow that we get in Washington, D.C., and just hope that they can find some warmth under a house Um, day after day when everything's frozen and there's no water. That, to me, is just a view. And it's done to satisfy people's desire to feel good about themselves, that they don't do something else. So it has to be done so carefully. And one of the things we do in our clinic is help people who are responsible sterilize the cats before they go out so they don't have to pay a phenomenal amount but really there are major problems with cats being just shunted out there getting sick being run over and no one being able to catch them anymore and getting old your cat doesn't necessarily uh, appreciate it if you just put them out somewhere with some dry cat food
1: Okay, I think we uh, might just need to leave it there. Again, we've been speaking with uh, Ingrid Newkirk of PETA. The new book is Animal Kind, Remarkable Discoveries About Animals and Revolutionary New Ways to Show Them Compassion. Of course, uh, there's ingridnewkirk.com, and as we noted with our caller, there's peta.org and a slew of offshoot websites. And again, she'll be uh, giving a talk, uh, Hooked to Animal Kind, at the Vault in Tampa on February 9th. So, Ingrid, thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Animals.
2: Thank you, and please look at. Amazon.com to find out more about Animal
1: Care. All right, thank you again.
2: Thank
1: you, bye. In a moment, I'll speak with Carol Baskin about the sentencing recently handed down to her longtime nemesis who uh, made arrangements to have. Carol killed. I mean, there's nothing funny about that. It's just a crazy, outrageous story, especially if you know the history of this guy, which we'll hopefully touch on. Right now, though, we're going to step into the Comedy Corner, as with some of the animal songs we play, some of the animal comedy pieces we present can be a bit metaphorical. Case in point, this panel piece we're calling Horse in a Hospital by John Mulaney in today's Comedy Corner, Talking Animals on WMNF. You like David Bowie?
0: We don't understand taxes, so we're, we're liberal people. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. So we explained that to them. And uh, they said, are you sad? Are you scared? Are you sad? Are you scared? I thought, no, we're not, like, sad. You know, I'm, like, kind of an optimistic person sure. about it all. So sure. I tried to explain that to them. Yeah. That, to me, it's like, um, it's like there's a horse loose in a hospital. <laughs> like, like, I, I think... I think everything's going to be okay, but I have no idea what's going to happen next. And, like, none of you know either? Like, we've all never not known together. And on the news, they try to get people, they're like, we have a man here who once saw a bird in an airport. It's like, get the hell out of here. This is a horse loose in a hospital. And we're all like... It's not good. There are worse things. But there are worse things. Mm -hmm. Yes, but it's confusing because every day we just have to follow the horse and some days it's like, the horse used the elevator. (laughs) You're like, is the horse, you know those days where you're like, is the horse smart? (laughs) And then we're all just like, why hasn't the horse catcher caught the horse? And then the horse is like, I have fired the horse catcher and you're like, that shouldn't be a thing.
1: That was John Mulaney with a piece called Horse in a Hospital from a visit to the Stephen Colbert Show. Now let's speak with Carol Baskin about the bizarre case of the attempted murder for hire, the conviction of her longtime rival in this case, and the apparent resolution with that rival now sentenced to a long stint in prison. This is Carol Baskin back on Talking Animals on WF. Good morning, Carol.
4: Hi, Duncan. So glad
1: to see you again. Thanks. Thanks for uh, joining us. And uh, so maybe you could give us, uh, to start off here, a quick overview of the rivalry, if that's even the right word, uh, and how it turned so dark.
4: Back in 2009, I was looking online for people who were doing cub petting, where they would take cubs out to malls and pimp them out to people for $20 a piece. And what I found was there were 21 different organizations that had different names but it was all joe schreibogel and so i created a page at 911 animal abuse and i listed all of his names so that when people were researching they could see that his bad usda inspections were all him on all of these different operations and so what he tried to do was change his name of his traveling show to big cat rescue entertainment and confuse people to thinking it was us and so we had to sue him to make him stop and we got a million dollar judgment against him And that just kicked him off even further. And so he started trying to whip all of his minions, people who believe in having big cats in backyards and using them for cub petting. He tried to whip them into a frenzy saying I was going to come to their house and steal all their animals and that they just had to kill me to make me stop. And he couldn't get anybody to do that. So he finally ended up paying a guy $3,000 to kill me. And that guy failed, and so he hired another person to kill me, and that person was an FBI undercover agent. And so he ended up being caught in 2018 and convicted in 2019 of two counts of murder-for-hire and seventeen counts of illegal trafficking in tigers
1: it's such a crazy, dark doozy that it's uh, really hard i mean i, I don 't know if you could have made something up as improbable as this and and along the way, uh, there was certainly clearly no love lost at one time. Joe um, called in during one of our interviews uh, here on talking animals and not surprisingly, it quickly became contentious but gosh it just uh, it just seems so. Uh, nutty and extreme but how did you first hear especially about the attempt number one i mean when did you first know that that it in joe's mind at least that it had gotten this extreme
4: well i knew that he was trying to get people to rape me to break my legs to break my neck to split my throat to shoot me a crossbow i mean all that kind of stuff he was posting on facebook and on youtube trying to get people to do it so i've known about that since 2009 but as far as him actually paying somebody to do it I didn't know about that until the FBI contacted my husband in November of 2017 and said that I should lay low. And so they were trying to um, arrest the guy who was headed, they thought he was headed here on a Greyhound bus. And they had an undercover informant that was keeping tabs on everything, but they lost track of him. So um, we didn't know for sure what had happened to him, except that it was obvious that I wasn't dead and Joe knew it. And so that's why he had to hire somebody else. And that was when he hired the FBI agent.
1: Wow. I mean, again, some of the stuff that's so improbable about this is that I guess maybe in the wake of the first one, maybe this was sort of almost inevitably by design it would go this way. But if the second attempt hadn't been uh, an FBI agent and been just some other criminal that Joe somehow knew and contracted with, I mean, who's to say what might have unfolded then?
3: Yeah, that's
4: true. And except for the fact that the first guy ended up having to come into court and testify about his part in it, yeah. he would still be out there looking for the rest of the payment on it because 3000 was just the down payment and he was supposed to get more after the fact. So oh. it, it was really scary. And what's even more scary is that there's, there's just so little chance that the police would have actually found out about this in time to have stopped it. It was only because there was an inside whistleblower that alerted the FBI that there was a problem. And it was only because he thought he was being investigated for wildlife trafficking charges involving Joe that he was willing to turn on him. So if there hadn't been just that one one person inside one organization, then it, Joe could have carried out his murderous plot without the, the government ever knowing about it until after it was done.
1: Wow. So what does the sentencing that came down last week represent for you and others, your family and others that are close to you?
4: I'm really happy that the courts gave him 264 months, which is about 22 years, yeah. because it's federal, and in federal prison you have to do 85% of the sentence. There's no like getting off for good behavior, not that
1: Joe could ever get off for good right. behavior. Right. be hard to imagine him qualifying. Yeah.
4: <laughs> so I know that for at least 19 years... He won't be killing tigers. He won't be trying to kill people who speak out against the abuse of tigers. And even after that, once they release him, the judge judge said that there was absolutely no chance that he would ever allow him to be anywhere near an endangered species again. So I know he's not going to be harming animals again. So that was a, a great sentence to... To have handed down, and I hope that it will deter the people in his industry from continuing to do the things that he was doing, because they are all doing the same illegal things that he was doing, which is selling tigers across state lines and calling it a donation. And that was part of what came up in the court um, proceedings, was that the people who testified said, everybody in this industry marks it as a donation so that the government doesn't know that there's money changing hands and they don't know that a crime has been committed.
1: Yeah. Well, we're, we're out of time at this point, Carol, but I'm glad it worked out this way, and I'm glad as a side note, but not really an unimportant one, that, that he was also sentenced to uh, wildlife-related you know, crimes as well as this crazy uh, murder-for-hire thing. So uh, hopefully that will indeed serve as a deterrent. Thank you for joining us, and I'm glad all is well and that you're safe now. Thank you, Duncan. Thanks, Carol. Bye-bye. We're at the end of Talking Animals on WNF. Rob Lorre is up next with Radio Activity, and then we'll be back next Wednesday with Laura Taylor trying to raise money on Talking Animals as part of WNF's Winter Fund Drive. Stay tuned for NPR News headlines. It's WNF Tampa. Thanks.